Welcome to Sculpture Vulture. I'm Lucy Branch, a sculptural conservator and author, bringing you a series of interviews with some amazing sculptors who inspire me and I hope will do the same for you. You can see the photographs accompanying the interview, the episode show notes and get a free novel from sculpturevulture.co.uk. Hello everyone, I'm thrilled to be talking to Hazel Reeves today. She produces some of my favourite types of sculpture, big, bronze and found in the hurly-burly of city streets. In recent years, she's secured several prestigious commissions, among them the Sir Nigel Gresley sculpture in King's Cross in London, commemorating engineer and innovator of steam trains, and the Cracker statue dedicated to the women who have worked in the Cars Biscuit Factory, now McVitie's in Carlisle, for over 100 years. I've been so keen to talk to Hazel ever since I was involved in doing some preventive conservation work for her on her incredible sculpture of Emmeline Pankhurst, our Emmeline in the centre of Manchester. Today I thought I'd kick off our chat by asking her when she first felt drawn to creating sculpture. Well I think you have to go back to when I was younger and I was desperate to go to art school and uh, my parents said no. And so I sort of forgot about that artistic career for many years. And then I was in the Dominican Republic working with the UN on women's rights. And I suddenly got in back in touch with all the things I was passionate about. So music, drumming, dancing, art. And when I came home, it was just sort of came to me that I was going to be a portrait sculptor which was quite bizarre because I'd never actually done any sculpting nor any portraits, but it's the only time in my life I've actually suddenly realised I had a calling. <laughs> and so is that because your parents thought that um, they, they just didn't have anything to do with the arts and so it was very alien to them that they discouraged it? Or was it that it just it wasn't a proper job? <laughs> oh, all of the above. According to my mum, art is a luxury and and you only did art if you couldn't do anything else. My elder sister was already at art school, and I think they also were worried about having two penniless artists in the family. So it was like, no, you're more academic. You can go off and go to go to college. And, um, and yeah, so it was many years later that actually I rediscovered that uh, this is what I should always have been doing. But you... you this is my journey and I wouldn't be the sculptor I am now if I hadn't been on that journey. Wow and so so it's definitely was something that kind of came to you'd sort of squashed down for a quite a long time. I wonder what it was about the Dominican Republic that brought it all to the front of, of the forefront of your mind. So it, was it, is it the environment there? It's it a, a creative very creative place? place. I really got into the Afro-Dominican folkloric scene there and that's very much about the music and the dance and um, involved in that. But it's also a very vibrant place, a very creative place, a very musical place. And also you're completely out of your normal environment. So making that transition from the UK to this, this sort of country of, I mean, deep poverty in some places, but also um, working with the UN was a tremendous experience. Um, but it was particularly the the nightlife and the nights out dancing that uh, just really sort of shook my whole system up. And it was like, ah, 
yeah I, I'm actually not somebody to be sitting at a desk <laughs> yeah and how long had you been sort of on this other career path um, for well I had several career paths but the the the, the latter career um, for brief you know, for time reasons um is I was really passionate about women's rights and I went and did a master's at um, LSE and ended up running um a research and communications program on women's rights promoting women's rights internationally and so I've been doing that for a number of years um, and as part of that I had a um, sabbatical out in the Dominican Republic and so I carried on with that career because I'm you know completely committed to promoting gender equality and social justice so um mm. i was able to bring i guess both my passions together and i was learning how to sculpt alongside going to these ministerial meetings you know across the world ah so that was what i was going to ask i was going to say apart from uh, the concept of sculpture and the the angles of it there's also a huge dexterity and practical wisdom that your hands um, and your brain to hands need to to go through because it really is such a technical thing and especially the way you sculpt you can see that it's very very carefully placed when um, the surfaces and things like that so I just wondered when you had time to sort of get that technical you know all those hours those 10,000 hours or or more that we're all we've all got to do to to become a master at something I mean it took a couple of years after my sort of realization that this was what I was going Mm. to be and I got on a course at Sussex University on their continuing education program with um, Sylvia McRae Brown and I started that evening class and then it became a day class and then it became compressing my working week into four days so I could go and spend a day up in London. And then it became summer schools and then finally a month in Florence. So it was became um, an extreme hobby. And then when there's a point when it was like, actually, this is what I really ought to be doing. And the joy of doing commission like the Emily Pankhurst was I could actually bring these passions together so the passion for women's rights and challenging inequality and my love and passion for figurative sculpture so you you imagine that was an amazing gig for me absolutely oh and what what a fantastic sculpture (laughs) I just love her I just love her honestly she's just she is magnificent and obviously that's where you and I kind of came across each other so um I think she's going to definitely be in my heart for a very long time because I think we've got quite a lot of things in common really uh I always felt that this sort of lack of female in public sculpture is always such a shame because it's not I don't think it has been an intentional thing necessarily it's just a reflection of history and um, the kind of monuments that were being produced but there is so many times where I just feel like there's an emptiness of female characters and seeing what you've done with Emmeline and with your other sculptures is something we need a lot more of if we possibly can so get working (laughs) work harder (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, you're. I mean, when you look at the figures, I think it was um, the PMSA figures and um, Caroline Corrado Paris worked out there's only 2.7 percent 
of statues were actually of historical non-royal women. I mean, 2.7%. So I can be very proud that I've added sort of three sculptures of women since then, and there has been a a number of of other ones. But it's interesting to think about, as you say, sort of why it is such a lack of representation of women. And actually, I think I've got a slightly stronger take on that because I think it's ultimately down to the lack of recognition of women's achievements and the lack of recognition of women more broadly. So in effect, it's very much discrimination. And I think, you know, it's also about who makes the decisions over time um, and who is deemed worthy of capturing in bronze. And it's inevitably it's men and it's all about sort of power and, uh, and money. So um, we're definitely overdue for more statues of women. Um, it's not the only way to, la- you know, redress the lack of representation of women in society, but it's mm. my entry point. It's one entry point. I think it is an important one. You see a lot of conservation begins with historic research. If we don't have an artist alive who we can speak to face to face, we are hitting obviously published material, but also unpublished. So quite often we are in national archives searching up anything that might have uh, relevance and what I found so often is fantastic correspondence that was involved in the creation of these monuments and very often the correspondence is by women and they are pushing for these these features to be made, these sculptures to be made. Maybe they are of their husbands, maybe they've had some other connection to the thing. But the thing that's really sad is that often that you come across this other aspect of it, which is documents which are kind of saying, oh, these silly women that want to have these sculptures placed in such and such. And so even their, their, their opinion, and obviously it's their energy that actually did a lot to bring those statues into those locations and actually they're already they're being dismissed and so and they're not published uh, these things so again it's that missing link that actually there was there were women involved in the creation of these things as well and their opinions were dismissed very often and so things were not put in the places that they were supposed to or that they were um, or the money wasn't raised in the way that they'd hoped but they were a big part of the creation of these monuments as well. And that's not acknowledged either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that sounds fascinating. You must write a book on this, you know. <laughs> uh, and you- I know, I've kind of got this, the secrets behind statues kind of book in my head at some point, but along with many other <laughs> ideas. I mean, I, I think it's what is interesting now is that there are a number of groups of women across the country that are rallying together and trying to redress this lack of women in in statuary. And I think that's really interesting. And I think uh, the real issue is around the will, but it's that the funding, and I think possibly at the moment with the COVID crisis, we've got um, very serious dangers of actually pushing back women's role in public life to a certain extent. And the arts funding has completely pretty much collapsed at the moment for obvious reasons. And these projects are reliant on often not government or council funding they're reliant on you and me giving yes, money and support them so a bit like the subscription system in victorian yeah. times you know give a penny to you know fund the statue but um, people are going to be going through some pretty tough economic times yeah. so it does worry me that that might have an impact on 
how many sculptors there are and what proportion of those are women. We don't revert back to a very few sculptors being made over the next 10 years and then primarily um, being of men. So I think that's something to watch yeah, out for. Sure. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was that I, I totally love your tagline on your website. I think I might have to pinch it actually because it's telling stories with bronze. And um, obviously I enjoy writing novels and they're all about bronze. Um, but I wondered what it was particularly that drew you towards bronze, why it's your thing in particular. I think I wasn't aware of it until I had my first commission. And it was somebody from one of my classes, that was a fellow student. And they obviously could see something in what I was doing in terms of doing portraits. And um, so I sculpted him and then he paid for it to be cast in bronze. So that's when my my love of bronze and that and the process, that's when it was sort of really... Um, kicked off my love affair I suppose you could call it which is that sometimes it's tempestuous but on the whole you know it's a, a pretty good relationship and I think first of all yes bronze it's practical it's durable it's robust I mean as a sculptor working in the public realm you need all those things so that is fundamental but I think my main reasons for working in bronze are sort of artistic reasons so it's a material that can take what i've spent months working on in the studio it can take my very fingerprints all my marks all my movement of the clay it can reproduce that into bronze perfectly so that's mm. really important for me that that sort of transferred across the process which is quite an invasive process in many ways and there's nothing quite like the feel of bronze, is there? Is and the weight of bronze, the, you yeah. know, touching it is is wonderful, and the colours that can come out through the patination process are quite extraordinary. I mean, it is a very variable and difficult process to get right, but that's why it is so amazing. I think, and I think bronze enables me to tell stories it enabled me to do something quite extraordinary which was to to position an over life-size woman on top of a domestic kitchen chair in public in the middle of st peter's square in manchester i mean that's rather unusual Very thing to do yeah but the, the, the properties of bronze enabled me to tell that story because i wanted to show how in the times of the suffragettes, they would be they'd be out on the streets ringing bells, summoning people from their homes to listen to their um, their speeches. Somebody would grab a kitchen chair, and Emmeline, who was only five foot tall, would be elevated above the crowds to um, urge them to rise up and demand demand the vote. So bronze and its strength enabled me to actually tell tell that story which I think was quite important and I do work with dancers being a lifelong dance lover and bronze can enable me to capture a real gravity defying pose mid-air mm. which would be impossible for the poor model to hold for very long um, and you can really exude the joy of dance by 
by playing with the balance and playing with it. And that's only possible really with um, with bronze. And I think... Did you try any other materials? Did you work with any others? I've, tr mm, I've tried plaster, but that doesn't have the robustness that I need for things like, you know, a gravity-defying pose. There's really no alternative material. I don't carve, stone isn't an option. Um, bronze resin, which some people use, or cold cast bronze, as they sometimes call it, that's not robust at all. I've used that, and it's fine for maybe a portrait, um, quite a simple form, but anything that's delicate or involves movement of weight, shifting of weight, just doesn't doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the Suffragette Scroll, which is towards Victoria in London, so just down from Parliament Square towards Victoria, that's been in place. It's one of the only monuments to the Suffragettes in London for many, many years. That's made from cold cast bronze in the old days a poor man's bronze and I did speak to uh, the estate to have unfortunately the sculptor had um, dementia at the time but his wife was saying to me we couldn't even raise the funds for bronze because even though it was such an important monument at the time there was no money for female based um, history sort of monument and so cold cast was all we could afford and it's an ongoing effort to try and conserve that because it has a rippled uh, scroll effect and the edges are continuously, they're so fragile, they're just breaking open all the time. Environment really, but also the strain and just the amount of water that then soaks into the interior of it and affects the more of the seams. So it's, uh, I'm, it's a wonder that it has lived as long as it's lived because you wouldn't actually know unless you came up and stroked it, that it isn't a real bronze. It really is very, very good, well-made. It's just that, you know, it can't be here forever because it's just not robust enough. Oh, it would be, yes. I mean, it makes you think that wouldn't be wonderful for that to go into a museum and have a, a bronze replacement out of the, so that you know that it will be there for posterity um, because that's... Yeah. I know it's one that um, I kind of always hope that one of the incredible female leaders who break the glass ceilings will go and sort of decide that they will patronise it as a, a kind of um, yes. a monument to, to women taking the, that forward. But it isn't a huge bronze, actually. But it, it, well, it wouldn't be a huge bronze, but um, it's kind of a special thing. Now, I think what you're mentioning as well about the engineering of bronze, what it enables you to do, is that's what you really see when you move into like looking at Renaissance bronzes, is that suddenly you be, you're able to get groups uh, in doing the most incredibly energetic poses, as opposed to previously when you look at classical times where they had uh, zillions of, of very large scale bronzes. It's incredible they had the technology to make those, the numbers and the size of bronzes in sort of classical times, but they were all individually posed and quite static. And, and it's just that suddenly when you hit Renaissance times, you really see a change. And it's because of the, the engineering, what was really, they were realizing could be done and experimenting and all those amazing foundries that I, you know, it's, it's the time I dream about being able to go back to. If I could ever time travel, I want to go to a foundry in Florence <laughs> during the Renaissance <laughs> times and learn. That's what I want to do. Oh, wow. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? But no. 
show at, at that incredible capacity you really begin to see that so early on and you realize that actually we haven't had that technology for that long in this country our earliest large-scale bronze is, is hundreds of years later and just you know how incredibly advanced they were with the technology um, and what they could do so have you had any problems with bronze have you had any conservation issues that have come up in any of your statues maybe in during the making or something i think both sculpting and the bronze casting process are basically problem solving processes so you're at every stage they're likely to be problems and so you're always asking the question how can i get this close to where it needs to be so artistically or in terms mm. of how can i make sure this um, wax is faithful to my original clay um, or how can i get this patination to work and i think it's about a close relationship with foundry and i work with Bronze Age sculpture casting foundry was their figurative special, and we have a very close relationship to solve the problems as we go along. So there aren't any nasty, nasty surprises. We we've worked out <laughs> a plan how to sort it out, and I do feel the tension until it's actually winched into place. I do feel that tension that it's my responsibility to get it from my as faithful as possible from my clay right through to the final product but i know and i have the confidence of working with their skilled um people in the foundry that through them skills mm. in mold making you know wax working casing in metal work in patination i know that we will get there and it's that confidence that i know we'll get there so i think they're very patient with me actually <laughs> They never actually say it, um, but that, that, you know that I know them completely. But um, I do tend to be quite finickety. Yeah, yeah you, that, you get you get me allowed to do that because you created her. <laughs> exactly, I got an investment in it, and, and I think that's what's lovely is is the feedback you can get from the people in the foundry who you know that genuinely want to get it and to meet your your vision, and you know you know on sort of a a joint journey together to sort of make this um this thing happen um so they tolerate me sure they don't sure they're interfering <laughs> but um i i mean sometimes it's very often a case as well of bronze being able to be put into a position especially in the public realm and seeing how they settle down because you, there are so many different aspects that can affect a bronze, which you can't predict because you don't know how the public are going to appreciate that sculpture. Uh, and when I say appreciate, sometimes it's not always appreciation. Sometimes it's a little bit more lewd than that. Um, unfortunately, you get some statues, I, I don't know why, but they are particularly portable loos it seems to be a beacon for people that are coming out of the oh, pubs yeah. and particularly have a, a name for that and then you have others which are like uh, I mean like Emmeline who actually when I'd been there after a whole year she had hardly any damage on her at all and that is astonishing to me because usually you would get I don't know people who are 
uh, hanging around and leaning up against a statue and rubbing away the patina un unintentionally. They just or scraping it with their bag because they've got a buckle on the back of the bag and they didn't realise. Or they've got people who are thinking that they might there might be a message to be put up on the media if they tag it with something that their name might be got out on social media or something. And actually, with Emmeline, I really saw nothing of that. A, a constant adoration from her public who came to talk to me uh, <laughs> while I was I was um, working. <laughs> Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and sure, that's, that's, I'm so glad you need people who are asking questions. It's people who just let people get on with things that actually, that's when a lot of damage can get done. People do all sorts of graffiti and people think, oh, they should be there. They're, I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. But actually, a lot of things are very hard to predict until they're in position. So you, you just can't know what damage might be part of their everyday life. Um, until they uh, until they're there I think there's um, something about ownership sort of community ownership of sculptures that I think makes a difference and I think with Emmeline um, there was engagement with the public from the start from the very first question which was why are there no sculptures of women apart from Queen Victoria in Manchester um, to okay here's a short list of all these amazing Mancunian women um, who do you want to vote for? Who wants, you know, who do you want the sculpture to be of? And they chose Emmeline, of course. So from the very early stages, even before I got involved, the local communities were, were involved and lots of the women's rights charities have been involved throughout. And I've worked with some of them and it's it's been a wonderful process to engage with everyone. And the unveiling was, I mean, the most tremendous experience. I mean, 6,000 people on the streets in, in St. Peter's Square. We had um, a thousand young kids. I mean, the noise was incredible. And I was leading the march into town with Helen Pankhurst, the great granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst. And we were meant to be leading the children. But of course, within moments, they were surging ahead of us. And we were getting left behind with their enthusiasm, sort of shouting out, you oh, know, brilliant. what do we want? Equality. When do you want it? Now. And it was so heartwarming to see these kids so engaged they'd um, made up their banners and um, walking into St Peter's Square to meet the, the throngs there was just an amazing experience and I don't say that's not me but it's I guess it's what you're if, if you'd asked me what my ideal might have been when I first started the process would be a statue that people engaged with I couldn't foresee what the unveiling would be like and how hopefully this statue is a catalyst ongoing and that's what I'm, I'm hopeful for and but actually um we've got very few things that we can do preventive conservation wise with outdoor sculpture i mean it's not in a museum you can regulate the environment really quite specifically to make sure that there is minimal change to that sculpture in that environment but outdoors we have a very narrow treatment ability to keep it as little change as possible but actually what you've just talked about there is an incredible preventive conservation strategy which is begin by engaging people that will appreciate and look after that statue and treat it well and become champions of that statue and it's just that 
is just as useful to that object as turning making sure you've got low humidity in a in a an environment at, at a gallery so um i think that that's that should be part of the plan of all the sculptures <laughs> yes it's, i mean what's been really interesting is that something that probably conservators like yourself would be horrified by um but for example um across the 16 days of activism against violence against women which is sort of an international program in november each year Manchester charities dressed up Emmeline each day differently. And so they're trying to get across the message that employers need to be keep an eye out for any of their staff that they feel might be experienced domestic abuse and getting them to sign up for a pledge to actually do something about it and, and be helped with sort of training on what support they can give. So Emmeline was dressed up as a a doctor, a nurse, she was dressed up as, I mean, you name it, a teacher, all sorts of things, people, but done in a very careful and sensitive way. So there was no use of wire. Um, there's, they, you know, they'd already thought about and talked to me about beforehand how they're going to be very careful not to harm her in any way. Brilliant. So the actual the outcome of getting that and raising awareness of violence against women was a really important role for that statue. And in more recent times, she's been seen wearing a um, face mask, for example, in our, in oh, our, in our COVID yes. times. Um, yes. She's been used for arguments around the need to tackle climate justice as well. You know, there's, uh, she was wearing inflatable vests, you know, and sort of questions about what happens when the sea levels rise to here. So actually, I think that's the, the biggest compliment I can get really as a sculptor for one of my pieces of work to be used as a political tool. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And not, and <laughs> not, not harmed. harmed anyway. But great that they're <laughs> engaging with you about it. That's the thing is that when people actually talk to those involved who can make sure that they can manifest their ideas, but safely and not without a big consequence to the sculpture. It's totally doable with public art, really, especially bronze, because it is, if you understand it, it is doable and it can be managed, definitely. So I've been reading your Nightingale Diaries, uh, which you've yeah. been enjoying. <laughs> and I know that you are very involved, or very inspired <laughs> by birdsong right now. <laughs> And um, I hope that you might be able to share a little bit about what fuels and strengthens your creative yeah. practice. I, I know that you've mentioned dance, but um, yeah. Have you got a creative practice? That's a good question. <laughs> well, I think um, initially I just saw myself as a sculptor and uh, I just do clay sculpting for bronze. And that, that, that was my creative practice. And I think over time, because I've been so caught up with the commissions. I think over time I've realised actually there's much more that I want to say. And politics is usually at the lowest level or, or, or a more obvious level. But I see myself now, I think, as an artist. And sometimes I use sculpture. Sometimes I might use birdsong and audio, uh, you know, soundscapes. So that's really exciting. I think I see sculpting in the more traditional form as quite visceral. And so I've always wanted to use this to affect people in some way, whether it's to bring a smile to their face, affect them in other ways, like, you know, a call to action. Um, I want them to, to affect people. 
And so this is where it comes into the storytelling. But I think it's a, I'm actually choreographing stories. So I'm choreographing and telling stories. And, and, I, and I want to tell these untold stories. So that's, I suppose, is my artistic practice. But as it goes forward, then I'm much less wedded to only using materials that have a very physical presence. I love the idea of using more ephemeral materials so there's one project i've been working on for the last um, six months which is a sculptor using a group of dancers as her dynamic material and actually manipulating these dancers using audio soundscapes so so kind of performance art so yeah so it's performance but it's bringing a sculptural perspective to it because i want to know what it looks like I also want, it, as a dancer, I always want to know what it feels like as well. So I've got this, this the, the view as a sculptor, but also this visceralness that is at the heart of my practice is I want to feel it as well as see it. So one of the, so um, when I kind of talked about practice, I was kind of thinking about how some people wake up in the morning and they meditate before uh, beginning their day or they uh, journal or something. So you don't jump out of bed and, and dance to, to I'm, I'm kind of trying to envision the sort of, or maybe you sculpt, but something different than what you're actually working on because no matter how much we love our creations when it's a commission it's work as well as a pleasure is there is there that other side to it where you're feeding that that creative flow oh that's interesting so so i don't have one of these sort of you know i go in into the studio and do a drawing every morning or anything like that i sort of i come to realize that actually my life is my artistic practice So I spend a lot of time actually in nature, my studios in the heart of the countryside. So actually the actually walking out is where I get a lot of ideas for doing other types of work. And as you as you say, I mean, I love birdsong. My my mum ran a bird hospital and sanctuary um, for many years. So that was what I knew, I guess. And it's only now I sort of perhaps recognizing that that's where my obsession recording bird song actually comes comes from and be able to and Very be able to use rooted. this in my sort of sculptural work by manipulating dancers you know so yeah so i don't have a, a particular um practice i am um, i went to a um a conference fairly recently which was about it was about conservation of contemporary um sculpture and, and different and other art and um they had a whole section on how to conserve performance oh, yeah. art which through it, it blew my mind because I was thinking how on earth I've never even considered what might go into uh, conserving that and it was about it, of course it was about exactly what you're talking about which is the ideas of the artist and how they can very easily without them being documented how they can be lost because it's not just about the movement and it's not just it's it's actually a, a, an interpretation and oh it was fascinating but completely I mean you know it's completely sort of mind-blowing and boggling yeah, I, think, I think it is I think for me it's very interesting to think about how this dance project for example you know is something which is ephemeral 
but the joy of actually working with other artists. So I'm working with a filmmaker, I'm working with a sound artist, I'm working with, you know, dancers, you know, and uh, other artists like a photographer and somebody who's a performance drawer. So they're all going to help me document it as part of the, you know, part of the artistic mm-hmm. process. So that will be interesting because I haven't worked in film. Yeah. Doing soundscapes is new to me. So this is all exciting well, stuff. I think that not that this this is not my field, but you need a conservator as well at this stage to so that it can that so what they were the concept was is that obviously to be able to reproduce these things in years into the future where understanding of what we're doing what's going on now is not there and it was you know very very subtle but yeah I think you need definitely need a conservator and actually I was listening to um, an interview with the one of um, the former um, archivist at the British Library who covers audio and it's fascinating about they've got some amazing audio speeches all types Mm. of things but there's very few machines across the world that can still play some of these things and they need to play them in order to digitize them and i hadn't really thought about that and one of our main sources actually for understanding original patterners that we use is audio so for example most of the photographs are black and white um, when you go back in time and we're yeah. trying to look at what the original patinated finish it wasn't necessarily just a brown bronze or dark brown bronze there there was nuance and it's in these audio documents that we often f- have the most fantastic revelations because you listen and the descriptions oh, are wow. so brilliantly done and no one's written them down in the newspapers it's all on audio and people just making comments when they've been interviewed about it and things like this oh fantastic source of material i t- yeah absolutely but I- i'll be horrified if they- if they can't digitize it all <laughs> what will we do <laughs> oh yes that would be I must say, I'm just so um, so delighted and honoured that you and Antique Bronze are the ones that are looking after my my Emmeline. You know, it makes it makes such a difference to know that um, a statue is being looked after, being maintained um, across the across the years. Um, and I wish more of my clients did the same and brought you in well the thing is that it's one of those things that I don't really mind if it's not me even I just want things to be if preventive is much better than having to start restoring things because there's just there's nothing like the beauty of bronze when it can be brought along carefully and managed you you just can't add that the extra part that time adds to something if it's been well looked after Mm. I think that there's such beauty in that and it's just such a shame to lose it and so these sort of spiky you know something's looked up restored and then left for 50 years and then restored again it, it's a vet it's an, it's not a good uh way about it and it's not necessary either mm-hmm. um so uh i sort of spend a lot of time trying to get people to just think about the long term once it's there don't just think about getting it there what happens afterwards I don't know, hopefully it's something that people get more sort of, it becomes part of the psyche of creating lovely monuments in the future. Maybe people will think more forward. 
Yeah, and I think I think given the Juicy Emily Pankhurst project, they've built in in terms of when they got their funding in and, and a lot of government funding came in, um, they allocated a large mm. lump of money to to pass over to Manchester City Council so they could afford to maintain Emmeline across the, the years. And I think that's very sort of forward forward thinking. Very well thought through, yeah. Yeah. So um, let's just finish up by telling me if you have uh, anything, what's on at the moment? Have you got anything exciting in the studio? Oh, well, um, well there's always projects in the studio. So <laughs> the moments with the bigger, the bigger projects, um, they're sort of waiting for funding, which has all been a bit stalled at the moment. So there's projects I have been working on, various different portraits, and I've got some plaster work i've got to be working on some heads and figures which is quite fun to do and i'm working in wax and doing some experimentations with dancing dancing figures to um show the agony and the ecstasy um, of, of of dance which i'm looking forward to doing I've, I've done some work at bronze age on on the waxes there and i've been playing with mud as well oh. so Gosh. um that's been very interesting so using mud as a as a sculpting material. Very good. And it's it's not because I haven't got any clay. I have got plenty of clay. <laughs> you the COVID situation has made us all have to be very creative in our thinking. But mud. Wow. Yeah. So sort of um, playing with mud and then going out recording the nightingales is sort of you know my idea of um, the perfect day. Actually. Well, that's a creative practice in itself, isn't it? Mud play. It is. It is. And and have you had good results with it? What's interesting is because I'm, you know, it's experimental. I'm documenting and photographing what what happens with what I'm doing. So it's a combination of working with the mud in a more sort of formal sculptural process. See how that works, and that's been interesting. The first one I did can collapse within ten minutes, which is what I sort of thought it probably would do. Is that mud from the, your garden, or is this special mud? <laughs> This is special mud. This is this is from um, the land surrounding my my studio. So I've been been permission to dig up different sections, and with the idea of actually returning sculptures to that place by the lake, you know, in the in the meanders, and documenting okay. what happens. Because I love this sort of idea of the which is opposite to you in some ways. <laughs> I love the deterioration of things as well, and what happens accidentally we've got lots of animals around so what happens you know when a cow tramples through my sculpture you know it's it's um it's like well what happens what does it look like and i want to be capturing it on time lapse using um, cameras out in out in the country to actually to see what happens well, so I, that's... I mean i do i spend a lot of time studying degradation so uh, and i've got an appreciate <laughs> you know actually as i've got older i think more so as well i've become more interested in things that degrade <laughs> and i quite <laughs> like them and i love them but i don't necessarily want to sweep it all away um and yeah. renew it um because actually much of the way particularly i've worked on um some hepworth bronzes uh, for up in um, st ives and the way that uh, some of the Hepworth bronzes have changed is so beautiful. Uh, there's a big balance and discussion about what you're doing because 
obviously she had a particular vision for her sculptures but actually I can't I wouldn't bring myself to advise anyone to change the way that they've changed because to me uh, the fact that they're they're slightly haggard is so is is fabulous and and you'd never get the patterns form that have actually formed naturally so um, no I think that there's it's an, a fascinating subject to see where things go to and I think nation is one of those things that it, it is a mystery yeah. how you get the colors initially and then how they change and sometimes you're nicely surprised sometimes not so nice sometimes surprised, horrified but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean I had, had one piece that I thought I was very proud of the patination I really loved it and then it was exhibited outdoors and ended up under a sort of leaky uh, drain pipe oh, no. and actually it i loved what it turned into oh, really? it darkened rapidly and with little flecks of turquoise so actually now look like it's carved from yeah, granite absolutely and you could never have created yes. that in a million years if you'd have tried it would exactly. never have happened. Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's some masterful stuff in there. I remember going to see um, the uh, over at Perry Green as well, the Henry Moores, uh, which uh, just another magical place to go to, and noticing there was a sheep that had adopted one of the sculptures and had slept in it each night. And it was sort of like this fabulous alcove. And he slept in it, they said, without fail he went to his bed at night and got in and curled up and I mean this was thick with lanolin I mean really thick because obviously the amount of lanolin on the on the sheep's coat so I mean you could literally peel it off but he was so happy now to him you know Henry Moore had created that and I mean it was it was huge as well but had this little like perfect dip for him that fitted his little body perfectly so I really hope you get a sheep or a kind of some a squirrel or something that appreciates your sculptures but I think sort of with Henry Moore I mean he did those beautiful drawings yeah. of the sheep by his studios yeah. at Perigree, didn't he? So he was really loved sheep. So I think it's but really... It wasn't particularly maybe a high-minded <laughs> concept. It was just a sheep's yeah, bed so I, that so he I think, was creating. You know, he was... Yeah, I don't think you would mind that. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Hazel, for taking the time to chat to me today. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, likewise, it's been a pleasure. You're such a fascinating oh, life. No, and... not at all. <laughs> um, I'm just very lucky that I'm surrounded by sculpture all the time. That's just, you know, just where I want to be. So just tell yeah, me, have you, where can people find you if they'd like to look at your work? Probably my, my website, which is www.hazelreeves.com. And I'm on Twitter, Hazel Reeves, and Facebook as um, Hazel Reeves Sculptor. So you can find, and Instagram as well. Again, Hazel Reeves Sculptor. So you can find me. I'm, I'm, I'm out there, and um, it's great to be able to get some feedback and look at over everybody else's inspiring ideas as well on social media Great. okay thank you very much isn't hazel incredible i just loved her comment about how her life was her creative practice in other words the way she lives her life feeds that artistic spark inside her she was actually very modest about that she didn't make a big thing of it but to have achieved that certainly isn't an easy thing and she didn't get it handed to her her life wasn't going along that direction and she had to make not just one decision to get herself there but a series of specific choices to keep herself moving towards what she wanted. I think it must be almost harder when you've got a successful career in something 
to turn away from that. Everyone understands that you might do that when you're unhappy, you hate your job, but she was successful and it would have been the easy road to have continued on with it and ignored the calling. So I really can't help admiring her and I'm definitely including Emmeline holding forth on her kitchen chair in that sculpture park of my dreams. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Rodney Monday. I gave him some advice recently regarding the conservation of a new project that he's got in Sirencester. And his figurative sculpture in bronze is winning him commissions all over the UK. And it's really obvious why. He splits his life between Britain and France, and he'll be telling us a little bit about that too. I hope you found it interesting and inspiring today. Don't forget to take a look at the show notes where you'll find some of Hazel's photographs. If you're looking for a new book, please consider one of my novels about the dark side of the art world, where sculpture is always at the heart of the story. You can get them on the show website, on the usual online retailers, or even better, keep your local library alive, ask for them in there. Thank you for joining me today. Sculpture Vulture has been brought to you by Antique Bronze.